Welcome to Men on Point, a Victories podcast. My name is DJ Paris. I am your guide and host through the show. And in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Andrew Smiler to discuss two topics, masculinity and sexuality. Now, what does it mean to be a masculine man in today's culture? And also, how can men get their sexual needs met in a healthy way? But before we get to Dr. Smiler, we have just one favor to ask. Please tell a friend about this podcast, Men on Point. We produce regular episodes featuring Victories leaders and also people outside of the Victories organization, such as our interview today. And last, to learn more about the programs that Victories offers men, please visit our website, victoriesformen.org. And take a look at our content calendar. We have various in-person weekend events and also virtual weekly support groups that anyone can join at no cost. Again, please visit victoriesformen.org for more information. All right, let's get to it. It's time to talk about masculinity and sexuality. guest today is a leading expert on the masculine self, Dr. Andrew Smiler. Now, Dr. Smiler received his PhD in developmental psychology from the University of New Hampshire and is a licensed therapist with expertise in adolescent boys, men, and masculinity. He helps teenage boys and adult men understand themselves and find a better way to communicate with the important people in their life. In addition to issues such as depression, anxiety, and family conflict, Dr. Smiler also works with clients around issues related to gender identity, sexual orientation, and other issues related to sexuality. Now, Dr. Smiler is a past president of the Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities, also known as SPSMM, and a past board president of Male Survivor, National Organization Against Male Sexual Victimization. He is the author of he is the author of several books about men's lives, including Is Masculinity Toxic? A Primer for the 21st Century, also Dating and Sex, A Guide for the 21st Century Teen Boy, and the Introduction to Men's Studies textbook, The Masculine Self. Welcome, Dr. Smiler. Thanks for having me, DJ, and thanks for that lovely introduction. Well, I'm- I got to be running for office when people list my credentials like that. Vote well, if me. you ever do decide to run for office, I would love to uh, to read your your do your voiceover for your <laughs> campaign commercials because uh, what what you've studied and what you have devoted a, a good percentage of your your um, professional life to is is something that I think is of particular importance, not just to me personally, but to the entire Victories community, which is masculinity. And um, so I'm really excited to to have you here. Thank you for, for choosing to spend some time with us. Absolutely. And thanks for the invitation and, and also the invitation for the live event a few weeks ago now. Yeah. So, so uh, in the last month, Dr. Smiler was here in the Chicagoland area speaking directly to our Victories men. And I was unfortunately unable to attend, but he was nice enough to grant this uh, this interview after uh, after his time here in Chicago. And so we are excited to bring you now beyond just the Chicagoland area, hopefully uh, worldwide with some of our audience. Um, 
So just to make sure that our audience has a good awareness of, of you, aside from what I just read, I would love to find out more about how you got involved in this idea of, or this focus of masculinity. So how did that, how did that happen for you? Sure. Um, it's a question I get a lot. Uh, it is a question that has a little bit of serendipity in it. Um, like many college juniors and seniors, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do after I got my degree. Um, and, you know, by that point in my life, age 20, 21, whatever exactly it was, I, I knew enough to know that like I was one of those people that my friends tended to come to for like serious advice and there's more, more substantial stuff going on. Um, so I decided to try to become a therapist and I was fortunate enough to uh, be accepted into the program at Towson University outside Baltimore. And I went there and they trained me to be a therapist. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to get a, jo a job in mental health working at a nearby hospital um, while I was doing my schooling. I got out and I, I got a job outside the Philadelphia area where I'd grown up working with a team with families. And my interest was primarily in working with adolescents. Um, there are a lot of folks who, who go into working with kids and they really want to work with the, the younger kids, the pre-puberty folks. Um, my interest was always work in working with adolescents. And as a male uh, working in the field in the 1990s, I wasn't that rare. The numbers have gotten worse today, but um, most of the places that I worked, I was the only male therapist on staff who was interested in working with teenagers. So I ended up working with a lot of teenage boys and their families. Um, after a few years of that, I decided that I wanted more. So I went back and I got my doctorate. Um, and as I was taking courses and, and learning more about psychology and human development, um, I realized that although there was this real presence and real focus on girls and women coming out of the, the 1970s era feminist movement and the ways that that had changed, um, not just the culture, but, but psychology and field of study, that we actually knew a fair amount about how girls developed into women and what those pressures were. Certainly in the culture at that time, there were discussions of anorexia and eating disorders focused heavily on women and very little on men. Um, and, and while I was in my graduate program, actually, um, 1998 was a, a big year. Boys had a moment. Um, the headliner there was Bill Pollock's book, Real Boys. Um, and that, that really kind of helped show the contrast for me. Um, and then I believe it was 1999, but it might've been the year 2000. Um, I was at the American Psychological Convention and I, I found this organization, the, the, uh, which is Division 51 of the American Psychological Association. So they do their subgroups as divisions um, called the Society for the Psychological Study of Men and Masculinities. And so there was all of this programming about boys and men and masculinity. And I, I attended those sessions and I started to read what those folks were publishing. And then a decade or so later, they made me their president. Um, so, so it just sort of took, took hold with you. Yeah, yeah. It was really like, oh, here's a thing that, that I have done a lot of. Um, the vast majority of my clients as a therapist in the 90s, again, had been teenage boys and the families they were growing up in and kind of seeing that there wasn't a whole lot of research there and then seeing that there were people doing the work 
I decided that that was where I wanted to focus. Um, and so I started studying, you know, male development, uh, boys development. And um, through a project with my advisor, who at the time was looking at sexuality, um, I don't remember exactly what the issue was that had prompted her interest because it was a new area for her. It really became apparent to me that there is this contrast between how we think boys and men are supposed to be and the reality of how they actually are. Um, and so that kind of helped focus my research onto kind of what are the images out there and what's the reality. Um, and the easiest place to do that, um, really working with a college age population, an undergraduate population, was to focus on dating and sex. You know, there's, sure. there's a lot of talk about what guys do and what guys are supposed to do. And I was certainly in a fraternity when I was an undergrad. And um, there's a lot of people running their mouth and, and kind of trying to make themselves look a certain way that often doesn't match the reality of, of how young men live. Um, and so that really became my focus is kind of what's the image and what's the reality and where do they really meet up and where do they not? Yeah, I, I remember those those times, the adolescent years for myself, uh, high school, college, and rem realizing, feeling at the time, although this would be in the 90s, the early early and, and mid 90s, I didn't know much about what healthy what what a healthy masculine energy might even look like because I, I wasn't thinking about it and I certainly we weren't talking about it. I don't remember my friends and I ever discussing that. It was there was a lot of focus on uh just trying to fit in. I remember fitting in being being something right. that was very important, um, being a part of a group and continuing that through through college. Um, what, what are some of the issues that today teen boy, and, and I'm sorry, I wanted to back up for a moment and say, I can, I can draw a, a pretty straight line for me as a 46 year old man, thinking about the issues I face today that, um, you know, haven't been fully resolved or integrated in, into my being. And I can draw a pretty straight line to see where those started to emerge. And I became conscious mm -hmm. of those challenges all the way back to my, my early, you know, my earlier years, my teen years in particular. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really particularly interested in this, uh, this topic. So what are some of the issues that, that adolescent men or, or boys are facing that seem to then, if they don't get sort of corrected or, or understood um, that can, can lead to some challenges uh, when they hit adulthood. Yeah, there's, so there's, and, and I'll start with your line there. There's a lot of pressure to fit in, right? And we can talk about fitting in in different ways, most relevant for us. And, and I'll kind of center our conversation on that is pressure to be in what now gets labeled the man box, but it's really pressure to fit this, this cultural image of what it means to be a real man, right? So supposed to be at least reasonably tough, right? Which means you should never back down for a fight. You should always be ready for a fight. Aggressive. Uh, aggressive, yeah. Or at least, you know, willing to defend. Assertive at least, yeah. Yeah, right. You don't necessarily need to, to initiate, but you need to be willing to, to at least defend. Um, there's pressure to 
once you hit about 16 or 17, there's real pressure to date and to be actively, to be interested in dating or at least sex. Um, there's pressure to, within that, those realms, pressure to be promiscuous, right? Being monogamous, being devoted sure. to a single person for a length, you know, a, a meaningful length of time, a year or two years. Like, that's not exactly cool. Like, it's not bad, but like, that's not quite the image. The image is much more um, playing the field or, or, you know, hooking up, um, screwing around, if we want to go in a slightly older term. Um, you know, there's pressure to not really show emotion, right? Like we're cool. We're supposed to be cool. And, yeah. and, you know, cool has a lot of meanings, right? There's a certain visual that goes with that. Um, but, you know, we also might talk about cool as an emotional style, right? There's not a whole lot of emotional reaction to anything. You don't show a lot. You might feel a lot. You just don't show a lot. Yeah. Stiff upper lip kind of, kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Stiff upper lip, but also, I mean, just, you know, you think unaffected. About, yeah. Right. It's, it's unaffected. It's it kind of nonplussed to, to use some of that vocabulary there. Um, like, you know, whatever happens, you know, if kind of, you might show emotion on a scale from like zero to 10, with zero being completely unemotional and, and really emotional and kind of somebody who should have their own quote unquote reality show, like being cool means you probably never get above a two or three, right? It's uh, everything is kind of muted. Everything is kind of toned down. Yeah, I guess it's sort of um, the, maybe the assumption is it, it projects a certain feeling of control or, or adulthood that I I'm, I'm a little above all the other right. stuff. I, it doesn't affect me like it affects other people. Right. I got it. No big deal. You know, it's cool. I can it's handle it. Yeah. I can handle yeah. it. Right. So there is, there are pieces of control in there. There are pieces of maturity perhaps. Um, but this is the style that we push. And again, stereotypically, like, you know, guys are just trying to fit into this image to match this image, but it's an image that we really project for, you know, adult men not just teenage boys, right? It's, you know, this is how guys are supposed to be, you know, once you've gone through puberty. Um, that has not always been our image here in the US. It is certainly not the image in other countries and other cultures. It is not actually the image in all US cultures or subcultures. Um, but that's that's the one that we see most in in our culture. If you look at, you know, media and the media that have the biggest audiences, that's what we tend to say. Um, we do make a carve out for both anger and lust. Right? We're going to give guys a little bit of space, but just just a little, just those two feelings. We don't carve out, say, happiness or excitement, just anger and lust. Yeah, anger and lust, both of which are were really driven into, as I remember, back to those times uh, well, I went to a Catholic high school. Uh, I'm not, I was, we were not Catholic. So it was particularly interesting as a, as a non-Catholic to go to, go to a <laughs> right. Catholic high school, because I, I said, oh, wow, there's all these rules that I, I didn't know about around sexuality and, and things like lust, but also anger, right? There's, there's yeah. a very much of a, be a good boy, uh, sort of, sort of philosophy of when, when, when the, you know, little boys are, are growing up, uh, let's not express our anger because anger is scary and can hurt and break things and hurt people. Right. And also it's feels out of control and that's scary and the world can't handle your anger. So let's, 
let's just try to tamp it down as much as possible so you can get along and be um, fit into society. And then you're right. This sort of lust piece was uh, was very confusing because you have I had these hormones that were telling me to not necessarily be promiscuous, but we're, we're wanting me to have physical interactions with, with women. Um, and then I had to counter that with, but I'm supposed to be uh, a good boy and I'm not, you know, it felt right. very, uh, and there wasn't anyone guiding me through th- or, or, you right. know, in any of my friends, like, I don't think through that process of like, here's, here's what you're probably feeling. Here's what it means. And here's what to do with it. Right. Yeah, there's there's a lot of mixed messaging both regarding regarding anger and lust and sexuality, right? If you you know if you watch action movies, whether we're talking about kind of the current generation, which are largely superhero driven, or stuff that we grew up with in in the '80s and '90s with uh, Schwarzenegger and Stallone and Jean Claude Van Damme, right? Like those guys are allowed to be violent out of anger. They're, they're either they're defending themselves or they're kind of retaliating for some attack against them. Right. Um, and that, right. That's, that is allowed and that is, you know, praised in these movies. Yeah. It's, it's really the ultimate expression of masculinity. Uh, the way that image was portrayed as this is at the top of the mountain. If you can get to this, you're the hero. You, you get the girl, you win over the hearts and minds of all the community. Right. Yeah. Right. And you save and, the world along the way. Right, right, right. And we, you know, over the, you know, since then, we've really gone to the place where we are talking about save the world. When we're talking about superheroes, as opposed to, say, Bruce Willis and Die Hard, because we're recording yeah. at Christmas. And, and I understand that. <laughs> Christmas it movie. is a Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can have that conversation later. Right. But, you know, like, you know, he, he just saves 100 people. He's not saving the yeah. world in that in that era. Right. It's It's a little smaller scale. You know, here we yeah. are. 2022 and it really is like superheroes and saving the world um you know so really mixed messaging a lot of this you know control your anger and tamp it down and anger is dangerous but then also these you know multi-million dollar movie productions where uh, angry guys help save everybody and save the day and then also the mixed messaging about sex certainly in the media there's lots of sexuality and and lots of encouragement more so for women than men to look sexually provocative, sexually attractive for men to initiate and pursue that um, and and try and be with those women starting to see more male on male relationships that way. Um, But then, you know, the, if you look at sex ed curricula, there are more sex, you know, sex, if you're getting sex ed in school, you're more likely to be taught about abstinence than actually any kind of, healthy sexuality, um, if you're getting any kind of sexual education at all beyond here's the biology. Um, you know. Yeah, I, I, re- I remember the this is a this is a you'll you'll appreciate this. I remember in high school. So again, I went to a Catholic high school and they I, I probably are senior. They brought us into an assembly. Uh, men and or, or all the all the kids in my class, right. boys and girls, and they brought in a doctor and the doctor started. And this is, let's say, 1993. I, I the the uh, HPV virus right. was not in the was was not uh, as as known as it is now. It, it, I had never heard of it uh, as a 17 or 18 year old. And I remember a doctor got up on stage and said, now here. And, and I'm sure they said it differently than I remember it. But the message I got was, if right. you have sex with women, 
you know, in your class, you could be giving them cancer. Um, and that was, that was the message <laughs> right. I extracted from learning about HPV. And it was not, oh, by the way, like all of you are going to get this at some point in your life. Anyway, that was never explained. And it was like, usually it's not a right. big deal for most of us, but it was, if you do this, you could actually hurt and, and possibly even kill somebody. And I remember being terrified of right. sex after that. Right. Which, which was the goal of the program. Right. And that's those, those approaches are still fairly common. Um, And yet we know that our parents clearly had sex for the vast majority of us. There are very few of us that are born strictly in vitro with no physical efforts at all. We know that the majority of adults have sex and enjoy having sex. Um, You know, we don't teach kids. Let me rephrase that as parents, as schools or other organizations that have, you know, ready access to kids and are supposed to be helping them develop, right? Those groups tend to not teach kids about healthy sexuality. It's all either just kind of the the physiology of these are your parts or, you know, be super careful because you're going to get a disease or you're going to get pregnant. Um, But we don't teach the good side of that, even though the vast majority of adults, you know, enjoy sex as an activity. Yeah. As, as a, as a healthy activity, I I would assume um, the the vast majority of us too. And to realize it's a place that one can go for comfort and, and, and intimacy and um, connection as opposed to, you know, some sort of. I should be having sex with, with people. I get to cross that or check that box off that I'm a man, I'm having sex. It's actually, I wish somebody would have taught me when I was younger, you know, this is a place you can go to for love and connection and support. And, and it's not the only way you can get that, but it it actually can be this very uniting and positive thing. And I was only told at least, you know, by not, not my, my parents never, never had issues around sex uh, to, to sort of, you know, push me in that direction because again, we didn't have those particular beliefs uh, maybe religiously that, right. that Catholics did at the time. Um, and, but I remember hearing it just constantly and, and seeing, um, and, and it just, it felt like a struggle. I remember feeling like, boy, yeah. it, 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 I never felt dirty or wrong, but I felt because I didn't have the confidence to talk to women and, and ask them out on dates back then. I just didn't have that, that there was something must be something terribly wrong with me. And I wasn't having sex because I wasn't going on dates. I was, uh, I was afraid of women. And I just thought, well, I guess that's just my lot in life. I don't have whatever it is that you need to be able to be the hero, the sexual hero, or have right. women um, falling all over me. Um, and and it, it really affected my ability to relate to women until I got into my 20s and then went, oh, I have to re- re-educate myself about this. So how, how, did, how did these challenges, if, if boys, uh, you know, teen boys are not taught how to cope and, and in a healthy way, sort of effectively process some of the sexual energy, what ends up happening in adulthood? If it's not sort of corrected, does, does it start to mutate and uh, sort of uh, unwanted behavior comes out or, or what do you see in, in, in your right. practice? Um, so that, that's a great question. And the answer is like many things in, in psychology and dealing with people, it depends um, or it's, it's complicated. There are lots of possibilities. One is, you know, like you folks, folks are able to figure it out. They're able to, you know, they, they reeducate themselves or, or, you know, maybe they go to therapy of some sort and that helps them work through some things. Um, 
But, you know, we know that the vast majority of adults in the U.S. get married, um, assuming it's legally available to them. And so there's some amount of clearly some amount of figuring it out. Um, we also know that there are some guys who. And and this really does seem to be limited to straight guys, to heterosexual guys, some guys who really don't figure it out and become and their frustration really becomes anger that they do take out on women um we've seen that be be particularly violent um online you can find that most commonly in the the incel community involuntarily yeah. celibate it, it, yeah um, let, let's let's just define that for our audience who who may have heard the word incel not entirely sure what that means so can you explain to me what what in or our audience what incel actually stands for sure so um, incel is a word and a, a group that, to the extent that this is a community, it really seems to be an online community, um, a group of men who are involuntarily celibate. Um, so they, they want to have word. sexual uh, experiences with women. They, for whatever reason, find themselves unable to attract women. And and they uh, I, do they self-identify as, as incels? Because I know it's also a right. slur that people can use when right. they so, appear, when somebody appears to be you know, disconnected or unable. Yeah. Um, it, it does seem to be a self adopted label. Um, certainly if folks are going to those websites, um, and those guys, um, tend to identify their lack of success with women as a result of kind of women, not appreciating what they bring to the table, right? The possibility of these guys are jerks, are, are not good partners, um, they have ruled that out. And, and however they have gotten there, that's, that's how it's they- It's not that. me, it's you. <laughs> right, that, that's when you, when you go to the NCEL websites and you read it online, um, it is, you know, women are rejecting them for no good reason, or kind of the system is somehow weighted against them, that they don't yeah. make enough money. Um, they don't look a certain way, they don't, don't have a certain enough, status. Right. Um, and, and we have seen some violence come out of this. Um, uh, Elliot Rogers, to, to use a name here from the U.S., um, if memory serves, uh, he killed several women in the Santa Barbara area. Um, there is a, a man in, uh, I think it was Montreal, who identified as an incel and, and killed several women up there. Um, so we have seen some violence and, and analyses of the the text that we see on incel websites and incel discussion boards, um, there is a lot of violent text there. So while these guys may be, you know, among the few that we know about who have actually engaged in real world violence, um, again, that, that community and that conversational space is one where violence is, is common and routine and accepted. Um, you know, so it's, while it is still a big step to go from a conversation to an actual murder, um, you know, it is a space that seems to provoke that, promote that. So, so the, the energy of maybe of the disappointment or the self-loathing that a teenage boy who doesn't maybe have the dating success or, or the, 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 whatever ideal the the teen boy has put in his mind of where he is supposed to be what he's supposed to be able to attract what he's supposed to be able to do he's unable to for whatever reason and then that turns to some sort of 
uh, anger. anger outward, anger inward. It's just a, a, a big mess because the the boy is not getting the uh, what whatever lessons to 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 understand his place in the world at that time and how right. women operate at the. It, it seems like there's a lot of uh, idealization that we 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 grab yeah. onto when we're younger, and you know, girls do it with maybe uh, more so than men. Maybe their their physical shape. I need to look a certain way. I need to be a certain size as, as, as a young girl, I need to be thin or, you know, and buxom or, or whatever it might be. Right. Um, men, um, go, I'm supposed to be <sighs> dating. I'm supposed to be attracting women. I'm supposed to be right. going out. And here I am in my, my, you know, in my, my basement, you know, in a, in a dark room and a computer, because I, I don't have these opportunities. Therefore the world is evil and bad. And, um, and, and now I'm really angry because I'm not getting a, my fair shake. Yeah, very much so. And again, this is this is a very extreme space that we're talking about. It's a space that is inhabited by a small percentage of the population, but a small percentage can still be, you know, thousands and millions of people, given the, the size of just the U.S. alone. Um, and so this is this is one possible outcome. And again, where our expectations, our images about how life is supposed to be for me as a, a teenage boy or young adult male don't actually make the reality. Um, you know, going back to the the question where we started, you know, for guys who who aren't very good socially and you know, whatever that is, whether that is just, you know, very shy and or introverted or just really poor social skills. If you think about folks who are maybe high functioning autistic or folks with attention deficit disorder, who also often have a lot of difficulties in social scenarios. Um, you know, sometimes those folks are able to figure out really how to do kind of one-on-one -on -one interactions and, and need to avoid groups or, or spaces, you know, party spaces or bars. And so in some cases, you know, online dating, um, which again is, is relatively new, it's only about 20 or 25 years old, but online dating can really be a space where those guys are able to try some things out and have some more, some more positive, but also some more formative experiences that they might be able to learn from, right? If you're having a conversation with, you know, somebody you're interested in at a party, right? It's just that conversation between the two of you, your friend who is also at the party may or may not be able to hear it, may or may not be able to give you feedback. But if you're, you're interacting with somebody online, right, that, that tends to start off as text your friend might be able to look at it and be like, oh, you're good. And then all of a sudden you, you mentioned this thing and it went off the rails or the person you're chatting with kind of was dropping hints, which again, in the, the stereotypical heterosexual dyad, we teach women to hint at things and, and the man to then kind of recognize the hint and, and take the lead. Um, you know, you missed the hints there. Um, and we can see that in the, the transcript in the text. Um, and and help men improve, you know, because we can can give them the that kind of detailed feedback. I, I still miss the hints today, by the way. So I have uh, um, I'm getting better. Uh, it's not I, unusual. I, I'm getting better. Well, but we most of our 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 audience are going to be uh, going to be men who uh, are either in a committed relationship uh, or married. Certainly, we have single uh, men uh, who are listening as well. But for the majority of us 
that are, and I'm, I'm not married, so I'm in that single category. Well, I'm, I'm in a committed relationship, but for, for those of us that have children, I, I don't, but a lot of our members do maybe who have teenage boys. Um, what is, what is it that you wish fathers understood that, that, that could help their teenage sons through those, those periods of time? Because I know that going to my father to ask him about dating advice, sex advice, uh, when I was a teenager was just not something that appealed to me. I think times right. have changed. I think uh, fathers seem to be more involved today with with their with their children um and really, you know, being a little bit more connected to feelings. but what are what are some things that you that you wish as a therapist that would help some of these young men uh, you know cope with with their adolescence and and especially with sexuality more effectively? Right. So I'm actually going to going to sidestep and then come back. Um, this idea that, you know, we what we've been talking about, where we, we've been talking about, you know, we teach young men or we teach everybody that this is what young male sexuality should look like. And there's a real discrepancy between that that image, that stereotype and the reality. That's also true for for men in midlife and older age. Right. We don't actually we don't have a lot of media and we have almost no conversation ours here being exceptional in some ways almost no conversation about what does adult sexuality look like what does sexuality look like in older age um, we know that there are real physiological changes that impact what's how sex goes um you know one of the the big one for men is um excuse me circulatory issues if you have circulatory issues, whether those whether circulatory issues are your main issue or whether your circulatory issues are kind of a side effect of some other medication you're on, um, if you have poor circulation, it's going to be hard to get an erection. An erection hmm. requires good circulation. We, we all know and we don't think too much about it, but that erection means that your penis is filled with blood and the blood is being held in the penis. Like That is hmm. what makes you hard. And if you have poor circulation, the blood can't fill in there as easily, and it may not be held in there as easily, right? If you have neurological issues, and again, whether that's a neurological issue in and of itself, or it's secondary to some other med medication, you know, the, the neurological system that triggers that erection, that triggers the blood flow, but also triggers the muscles to keep the blood in the penis, right? That's going to make it more difficult for you to get and maintain an erection. Um, and we don't have, and a, and a teenage boy isn't necessarily thinking about their health. Uh, whereas right, adult right, men right, tend right, to do right. that. So, so they might not even recognize there's a circulatory or something going on with me physically. They just know they can't get hard. Right. Right. And, and for teenage boys, the, the issues are rarely physiological and unless they have other, they already are having other substantive issues, right? We don't think about, you know, there's a very small percentage of teenage boys who have circulatory issues or neurological issues, and they tend to be um, other substantial disorders or diseases that are going on. By the time we're talking about, you know, you're in your forties, I'm in my fifties, like Circulatory issues are fairly common. Neurological issues are, you know, starting testosterone to level, right? And 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 testosterone level, which which is also complicated in and of itself, right? Like these these start to be issues in midlife. We don't we don't see these conversations really in the media, in you know whether that's that's mass produced media or more local like this. Um, 
you know, a lot of men don't know that that's typical that at age 50, your erection is not going to be as strong or as easily obtained as it was at age 20. Um, that, you know, the kind of the power and the feeling of that orgasm, that, you know, that kind of final thrust and when the ejaculate comes out, that's going to be less intense at 50 than 20. And that's just natural aging. And, and um, do you know, and that's things- the first, this is the first time I'm hearing that, that, and, and I, I'm the person that goes to doctors. Uh, I, I go to, <laughs> I have my doctors I see every year for right. my checkups and things. I have a therapist. I have, you know, um, I'm pretty cued into, uh, to this sort of, uh, information. And I didn't know that. So I imagine there's a lot of men that wake up and they're 50 and all of a sudden they're not as easily able to get an erection, uh, their circulatory, uh, you know, uh, maybe they have some circulation issues that they're not even aware of because they're not. It's not like they can't feel their fingers. They right. just for know that maybe their penis isn't quite as rigid as it used to be and not as often. Um, and they start maybe, I don't even know uh, what, what they might be thinking, but they don't necessarily think I need to, I should go see a doctor to get to sort of get a, a better, maybe a urologist or something to see if there's an right. issue. They just know, oh, it's just it's not, not right. yeah, the, what's wrong. Before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, again, I'm, I appreciate the fact that we're able to have this conversation here. Um, I, I certainly have men coming to me in my therapeutic practice, and, and this is part of the conversation. Um, you know, you're right. At 50, the sex, your sex isn't going to be like it was at, at 20 or 30. You know, there, there's kind of some natural degrading of the system. And we, and again, part of the conversation, part of how we raise boys Part of what we we fail to tell everybody, not just those folks who own penises, but the people who are interacting with them, like we tend to think about the penis as kind of its own thing, um, you know, and I mean, literally, it's hanging out there doing its own thing, uh, you know, physiologically, but we don't really think about the penis as, you know, being related to the circulatory system or the neurological right. system and the musculoskeletal system. Um, but it is right. Just like every other part of our body. And so we don't have that integration kind of in our heads, in the cultural dialogue. And so again, for, you know, for folks in, in midlife for folks in older age, very little conception that male sexuality in the second half of life would be any different than male sexuality, you know, in the first half of life in my twenties and thirties. I am really glad we're talking about this because I hadn't thought about my sexuality changing over time, understanding that my libido may, may begin to degrade over time that, that I understand that makes sense to me. But even if I had less of a powerful erection, um, it would really worry me. I wouldn't think, oh, this, this could be a normal, natural part of aging. Um, I would think, uh uh-oh. Um, because so much of uh, a man's identity is related to his ability to perform sexually. I mean, we, we see this with, uh, people who are, who have performance issues, whether it's erectile mm-hmm. dysfunction or inability to ejaculate or, or, you know, premature ejaculation. Um, it really, really affects can, can affect a man's self, uh, self-worth, um, because there isn't a lot of discussion out there in, in it's, it seems it's a very private thing for most of us. It's an embarrassing thing. Um, it, it doesn't, I'm sorry. It feels embarrassing. It feels shameful to, mm-hmm. to be able to admit. Uh, so it's just something men don't really talk about. 
Right. And so, so back to the question that I sidestepped there, um, and you were asking about kind of what do we need to teach our sons and fathers in particular, um, but I will extend this into partners and kind of take it through the whole lifespan. Um, we need to be talking more about the reality of sex and dating, whatever dating might mean, that has certainly changed. Um, you know, we need to be talking about our expert, our expectations. We need to help our boys figure out not only how to have those conversations kind of with us and, and with their friends, but with their partners, um, certainly for, for individual men that I work with or couples that I work with, how do the, you know, how do you have that conversation with your, your long-term partner, whether that's, you know, marriage or not, regardless of partner, you know, what sex or gender the partner is, you know, how do you talk about what you want? How do you talk about what feels good for you? Um, one of the questions that I ask the guys that I work with is, does it, you know, is the only sex or is real sex penetration and anything that's not penetration kind of doesn't count. Um, you're in your forties. So you likely grew up with the baseball metaphor, right? For sure. Kissing, yeah. second base is, uh, or second base is groping. Yep. Third base is a hand job or a blow job and a home run. You score is penetrative sex. Right. So that's, that's the ultimate, just like a home run is the ultimate. Right. Uh, uh, so sex therefore is better, more important, more significant than a single, a double, even a right. triple. It only, right. And it only really counts. Right. And to the extent that we talk about losing your virginity or the, the team right. talk about losing yes. your virginity, right. That is penetrative sex. We're, again, if we're talking about heterosexuals, that's a penis in a vagina in, in gay male culture, that is a penis in an ass. Um, and like, that's the standard, but if you're having erectile issues, if you have mobility issues or your partner has mobility issues, right. Think about some, some of the positions that we like to get in and the ways that we are configuring our body during sex. Um, you know, mobility plays a huge role in intercourse, but like, who exactly is it who said that these are the only things that count? It only counts if you're putting your penis inside somebody else's torso. Yeah. Right? What, where is that written? Yeah, um, it's 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 written in a, in a lot of uh, literature. It's written in a lot of media. Um, it was it's an ingrained part of our culture that we've all adopted as as fact. Right. So so this is the image. This is the stereotype that we are all trying to live up to whether or not we are physically able, whether or not that is actually what we prefer. Um, I, you know, certainly had a lot of male friends, a lot of male clients, um, regardless of who they're having sex with, who talk about how much better a, receiving a blowjob is than penetrative sex. Because when you're receiving a blowjob, as a male, receiving a blowjob, you can just focus on how good this feels. Yeah. And if you are penetrating somebody else, right, if you're penetrating a woman and the goal is kind of for the two of you to, to climax together, right? Like you got to pay attention to how your partner's doing and whatnot. There's a lot to think about. Yeah. Right. Right. You know, you can't just focus on yourself if, you know, if you're penetrating somebody else anally, right, you, you may have real concerns about 
how long you can stay in there and whether or not they're comfortable and when they're going to tell you to stop, um, you know, and are they enjoying it? You know, where is my hand? Am I stimulating them at the same time I'm doing this? And am I coordinated enough to pull that off? Um, you know, like somebody, somebody going down on me, somebody going down on a guy, like, and I can just focus on my own pleasure. Like that may really be your preference. Yeah. But if you and and, and that, that's, it's okay. And not necessarily selfish to right. want to receive. Right. And, and typically the answer there is right. We take turns you do for me. Reciprocation. And I do for you. Yeah. Right. But you know, if, if your conception of a good sex, a good male sex life or a healthy male sex life requires that the vast majority of your sex involve putting your penis in somebody else's body, as opposed to, and if somebody is bringing me to orgasm in my preferred method, then again, there's this real discrepancy between the, the image, the stereotype and the reality that we have, or we would like to have. I am. Um, I would love to, in the last sort of, you know, 10 minutes or so, I would love to talk about something that I think is really important. I'm curious to get your take on it. I think it affects adolescent boys. Certainly, well, I know it affects adolescent boys and I know it affects adult men. Um, it seems to be something that that is so prevalent in, which is pornography. Um, the advent mm -hmm. of pornography used to be behind a, a pretty serious paywall, right? There was, you know, you, if you when I was growing up, you, you had to walk <laughs> through the woods. Maybe you found a magazine that was beaten right. up and tattered. Uh, right. It wasn't, it wasn't available on, there wasn't online when I grew up, there was no, none of that. And it was very difficult. It wasn't easy to get access. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm grateful for that because now there's instant access. Everything's free. It's, right. it's right in your pocket on your phone anytime you want. And it's perfectly dialed into uh, a man's, uh, sort of the way a man experiences pleasure, you know, the, the marketers and the people who film and produce these, these scenes, uh, they get it. They know what, what right. men, they, they and so they've exactly dialed in. Is. Yeah. So I'm curious, it's something that we just don't talk about. And I know we're not painting uh, anything with a, with just one, one, one swath of a, of a, of a paintbrush, but what are, what are the, what are, this is something that I, I think every adult man, not everyone, but a lot of them, a vast majority, maybe even of a men of a certain age are probably watching pornography, if not daily, certainly weekly. And what that does what that can do in, a, in an unhealthy way to a committed relationship or to even somebody who is single. Um, right. Do you have, do you have any, any thoughts about, about what, what this is, is this a problem? How, and, and if it is, what can be done about it? Um, so I have many thoughts and, and I am going to draw some parallels here with uh, kind of the world of alcohol use or other substances that people might use. Um, you know, if you have, most of us are comfortable with the idea that that people can have, you know, an alcoholic drink here and there, you know, once, twice a week, two or three drinks, whether those are beers or wine or cocktails, whatever. Like, that's not really a problem. Most folks will tell you that's not really a problem. Our culture doesn't need to worry about that kind of alcohol usage. I think that the same thing is true for adults using pornography. You know, once a week, if you're masturbating to porn. And I want to be clear that the issue is for when it comes to sexual experience, the big part of the issue here is masturbating to porn. It's not like, oh, this is an interesting film in which John gets together with Mary and the dialogue is a little sketchy, but the action is cinematography are beautiful. Like, 
right? This is not art. The, the, you know, we're, we're using this as stimulation to get aroused and to masturbate to. Um, so again, I think, I think there is a space for some kind of healthy use of pornography in the same way that we might talk about healthy use of alcohol. Um, that said, we do know that there is a lot of porn out there that is violent. We know that we don't always see consent in porn. We typically don't see condom usage in porn. So there's no disease prevention, no pregnancy prevention. We certainly don't see conversations about protection uh, either against disease or pregnancy, which are all things that we really should be doing in real life. Um, you know, we should be asking for consent. We should be, you know, having those conversations about protection. We don't see that in these, these short porn films. Um, so that is, is really an issue because we don't then, you know, as teenage boys, as adults who are, you know, dating in their 40s or 50s, maybe returning to dating, um, we don't necessarily know how to pull those up, those conversations off. And it hasn't been modeled for us anywhere. One of the nice things about kind of more PG and R rated media is we do get lots of images about how do you flirt with somebody and how do you have those conversations and how do you read some of those signals that, that you missed, um, you know, catch some of those hints. Um, we also know that for some guys, and this is not most guys, this is not the typical experience, but some guys, the porn use for some men does become increasingly violent or increasingly risky. Um, Again, similar to what we see with, say, alcohol use or some other substance. Um, and for those guys, for those men in particular, there's a whole other set of issues about how does that translate out into the real world? And do they start looking for you know, physically riskier sex? Um, you know, things like choking. Because, um, you know, there is the ability to, to cause damage and even death there. Um, you know, just hitting people and that kind of violence. Um, and depending on, on how you think about it, even kind of verbal aggression does, you know, is it okay to call your partner um, a bitch or a slut or a fuck boy or whatever, right. you know, to their face? Like, oh, I'm glad you got here. You know, and and not only over. is it, is it okay? Is it a turn on? Is it going, is it, right. and there are films that clearly, um, that clearly project that, that idea. Right. And, and certainly there are people who do it in real life. You know, if we talk about folks who actually have like a so-called sex with benefits relationship or someone who is just a regular hookup partner. Um, and we know that those, those relationships are difficult to navigate and that it is fairly common for one partner to start to develop feelings, develop a romantic attraction. Um, you know, your partner may or may not ever want to hear you use those terms towards them. Um, but, you know, if that's what you're learning, if that's what you're watching and you are pairing that with the very good and powerful sensation of orgasm, right, then that starts to, um, you know, kind of become part of your, your mental framework for how yeah. sex is supposed to go. Yeah. Right. And, and so the, the aversion that you might have to using these terms in this language or, or engaging in choking or other kind of physically risky and, and harmful behaviors, like that goes away because 
you're pairing it with something that feels really good, which is your own orgasm. And so we do see some risks there. On sort of the less extreme side, uh, and I, I always wonder if this is, it's almost, uh, I always think, I think of it again with, with no understanding or expertise uh, like, like you have, but is almost like carbon monoxide. It's this, um, or is it carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, the silent uh-huh. killer. Um, right. I was thinking so much of us, you know, maybe we, we watch pornography daily and we're going, well, I'm not accelerating into uh, more uh, uh, extreme types of, uh, of pornography. I'm watching similar you know, types of films that are, I think are, are in the okay range for what I think is healthy. But, uh, so I'm not accelerating and increasing my, my usage into, into more intense, uh, sort of, or, uh, pornography, but I'm using, I am using it more frequently because I'm either avoiding intimacy with my partner. Maybe I want more sex. She is, or he is unable or unwilling to, to provide that for me, or I'm afraid of my partner. Um, it's certainly a lot easier to masturbate than to try to um, do all of what's required to have a mutual, ben- mutually beneficial sexual experience. So it's easier to pleasure myself, um, and I can dial up an infinite uh, amount of movies and, and images to right. to dial in exactly whatever my preferences are. Um, and I suspect the the vast majority of men in committed relationships who use pornography, who use it in a way that they may identify it as a problem. I suspect it's probably more in in, in that range where it's like, I'm just doing more of it than I should. And I'm not having the hard conversations with my partner about my needs. And I'm not being honest about it because it also is something that I suspect a lot of partners aren't aware of that their partner is doing. They're not saying, I'm going to go put on a you know porn movie. I'll see you in 10 minutes. It's right. I'm going to find t- 10 minutes when my wife or, or husband or whatever is, is gone. So I can do this, I can clean up and I can get my needs met. Um, right. what, what do you, what do you say to men who are in that camp that are, are wanting more, maybe wanting yeah. more sex from their partner, or maybe they're not wanting more sex, but they're, they're, they're really hooked into this regular pornography use. Um, and that's become their main sexual outlet. Um, you know, I say, I will say a couple things here. One is that you really need to be honest with yourself and, and careful, you know, and again, drawing a parallel with alcohol, you know, folks who say, well, you know, I used to drink one or two, you know, once or twice a week, you know, now I drink three or four times, but it's no big deal. Right. But, right. but there's some acknowledgement there that, that they are shifting, um, the even though it it can be awkward it can be embarrassing um it is would probably be easier for most folks who are starting to be concerned about their pornography use to have a conversation with a therapist in first instead of their partner before their partner um there are therapists who get training in sexuality the the one established credential comes from the American Association of Sexuality Education Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, AASECT, ASECT. Um, and so you can find therapists out there who are ASECT certified in sexuality. Um, other therapists may or may not have any training. Um, but again, folks who are ASECT certified, usually pretty public about being ASECT certified. You don't get that credential and hide it. You get that credential and advertise it. Um, so that's a, that is often a good place to start. And, you know, again, for someone going for this reason, you should expect to have, 
you know, at least three sessions, three one hour sessions with somebody before they can give you a really solid perspective on whether or not, you know, how your sex life is going, seems to be going and what you might be able to change about it. Um, you know, couples counselors are also useful in this situation. Um, again, couples counselors may or may not have a, a substantive background in sexuality. Um, and a couples counselor is going to see, want to see you with your partner pretty much from day one. So, you know, you have to be ready for those difficult conversations as you walk in. And if it's something you need to work up to, then you may choose an individual therapist first. Yeah. I've, I've always thought if, if you, if you, I'm curious to get your take, if, if you, one way to determine if you might have an issue is if after your master done masturbating to pornography, how do you feel after the orgasm subsides? Is there, is there a, 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 a fit amount of shame, guilt? Um, do you feel okay? Uh, do you feel not okay? Um, I'd say if, if you feel not okay, then that would be maybe an indicator to go explore help, um, whether it's, you know, through, well, yeah. I would do it through a therapist. Person. That, right. I think that is a big indicator. Um, the other thing that I, I often ask clients and I encourage men to consider, would you be comfortable showing your partner the porn that you are watching most often? And if your answer is no, then, you know, you probably need to be talking to someone. Um, yeah. If, if you have a committed partner, someone that you, in theory, have the ability to be sexual with, and you can't talk to them about, this is the sex I want, or this is what I fantasize about, then there's something that's problematic in your relationship, at least when it comes to the sexual part of your relationship. And that can be a really scary conversation in particular, if the people that you're watching have sex uh, visually are, are, are of a different, you know, physique or, or a different, just aesthetic than your partner. Sure. Right. So, so I think that's a re it is a, a very, uh, challenging sort of and delicate conversation mm -hmm. that which right. makes sense to where I maybe need to go talk to somebody first to find out sort of best practices around how do I inform my partner? If, if that's what's appropriate, how do I inform my partner about my preferences? How do I do it in a, compassionate and kind and, and thoughtful way as to, you know, keep their needs to some degree in, 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 in um, yeah, in, in mind, um, you know, in our last few minutes, you have written many books and I just wanted to give our audience very quickly, cause I, I know we're, we're wrapping up, but just, if you could just mention the books you've written and who they are for in case anyone in our audience, you know, wants to learn more and wants to read more about what you, uh, what you've talked about today. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to work uh, in no particular order here. I'm going to start with the book that kind of was prefaced by our last bit of conversation here. I wrote a book that is really kind of a how-to for teenage boys, even into young adult men, called Dating and Sex, A Guide for the 21st Century Teen Boy. Um, I'm not particularly subtle in my titling there. Um, the And as the title indicates, the book talks about both dating and sex, kind of how to and, and provide some, some clear direction about how to figure out if you're ready for dating and what dating means, if you're ready for sex and what sex means and how it might feel. Um, and I would encourage folks to um, provide a copy of that 
book to their their teen or the young adults in their life, um, but also to maybe read it themselves and be able to ask questions. Each chapter has you know some kind of worksheet or, or you know quiz or whatever. Um, and so those questions can be useful, even if you're not sure if the boy you're giving the book to has read it. Um, for folks who kind of want more of the big picture about male sexuality and some of this difference between stereotype and reality, uh, my first book is called Challenging Casanova, Beyond the Stereotype of the Promiscuous Young Male, uh, published in 2013. It is out of print, but there are still used copies out there that people will sell on your used book uh, websites. Um, going a little bit more broadly, um, talking about kind of what does masculinity mean here in 2022, 2023. Um, one of my more recent books is called Is Masculinity Toxic? A Primer for the 21st Century. Um, it's part of a book series called the Big Idea Series. We have other topics in that series. Um, is gender binary? Will medicine save us? Is AI good? So a, a, you can see it's a series of provocative titles. Um, that book is still available, both hardcover and digitally. Again, is masculinity toxic? A primer for the 21st century. Um, and and then I also write a textbook, but you're probably not looking to buy a textbook. Not not since I was 22, and uh, yeah. and I was gl glad to to <laughs> stop having to buy my $300 textbooks, which uh, I don't know if they're still as expensive as they were when I was in college, but probably more so. <laughs> but uh, it, um, it, but it depends on what you're what you're buying it for, yeah. That's true. Well, Dr. Smiler, I, I appreciate it. I would love to have you back on at some point to really dive into toxic masculinity. We we know that this is something that is is very, very commonly spoken of, but yeah. never, not as much spoken about, I think. It's it's used in, in a, a sort of a label, but I, I'm not always sure what toxic masculinity means. So I, I'd love to explore that in a future episode. But for this, this episode, I, I did want to, sure, of course, cool. thank you for your time. This has been you know, it's one of those topics, male sexuality, that we could really do a whole podcast. I'm sure there are podcasts specifically just on male sexuality, but it's something that's so complicated and it's so underrepresented in in media that I'm grateful to have had at least a little bit of time to start to you know dive into uh, at least the shallow waters of this, and and I'm excited to uh, possibly go a little deeper maybe in in future uh, future episodes if if we could ever uh, get you back on the calendar, but. Um, wanted to thank you on behalf of our audience for not only speaking uh, recently at a Victories event, but also taking time out of your busy Saturday to uh, to come in and and talk to us more. So uh, for everyone listening, we, we want to thank Dr. Smiler for his time this morning and also to encourage everyone to go pick up his books. Do you have a teenage son? Well, you have a book now. I wish I would have, I don't know that I would have read it. I would have, uh, it would have been hard uh, as a teenager, uh, but nobody ever checked in with me about that. And I suspect most teenage boys don't get a whole lot of check-ins um, from, from their parents about, you know, dating and sex and it, it, you know, any sort of guide. I don't know that I would have wanted to talk to my parents, but had they had handed me some, something from an expert, you know, I might've actually read it. So I encourage you guys to do that. And then there's also, of course, books uh, for uh, sort of, you know, adulthood and and what it means to be uh, to be to be a masculine man uh, in, in this day and age, which um, I think is becoming increasingly confusing to me. So maybe one day we can we can explore uh, the idea of, of masculinity. But Dr. Smiler, thank you so much on behalf of uh, our listeners and viewers. And on behalf of Dr. Smiler and myself, we want to thank everyone for making it to the end of this episode. Um, please, we just ask that you do one thing, which 
which is oh two things one one is to explore dr smiler's books uh see what he's up to he is one of the foremost experts on uh, male sexuality as well as uh, intimacy vulnerability what it means to be a man um consider purchasing one of his books and uh, you know also he has his lecture schedule on his website and he's constantly going around and uh, and speaking on these topics um and also um to tell a friend think of one other man that might be struggling in this way we all probably know somebody that struggles in some way with with sexuality send him a link to this episode we'd really appreciate it well dr smiler i really thank you for your time today and we will see everybody thanks. on the next episode thank you thanks dj it's been a pleasure to be here